1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ukraine's energy ministry is under ransomware attack. Kaspersky finds infrastructure belonging to Energetic Bear. Lots of anonymous Twitter accounts pop up in East Asia. Orange Worm is after something in healthcare networks, but whether it's IP or PII is unclear. We've got disclosure and patch notes. Kaspersky may be the subject of U.S. sanctions. A hacker in the Yahoo breach case could get almost eight years. And as midterms approach, thoughts turn to election security. From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, April 24th, 2018. A ransomware attack has hit Ukraine's energy ministry. A spokeswoman for the ministry told the BBC that the attack was isolated, that no other agencies have been affected, and that indeed the ministry's email is up and running. Still, the incident is a nuisance. The ransom screens are written in English. It's not good English. It looks very much like an actual non-native speaker's production and not something in shadow broker's ease. For example, it says oops your website have been encrypted and all files will be delete. They're asking for just 0.1 bitcoin which comes to just under $1000 and they're not taking PayPal or any other substitutes. The indications are that it's a simple criminal attack as opposed to misdirection by nation state like for example not Ukrainian authorities have a criminal investigation in progress. Moscow-based security firm Kaspersky Lab says that its uncovered infrastructure used by the Crouching Yeti Threat Group, also known as Energetic Bear, for attacks against industrial networks. They've been tracking the group since about 2010. They call it a notorious Russian-speaking group that has been active for many years, and is still successfully targeting industrial organizations through watering hole attacks. The researchers note, somewhat darkly, that the diversity of infected servers and scanned resources suggests the group may operate in the interests of third parties. A surge in anonymous Twitter accounts in Southeast and East Asia has prompted speculation about the formation of bots to influence public opinion through the social media platform. Twitter doesn't believe it's yet seen anything out of order, because maybe it's just a bunch of starstruck types following celebrities. But people are looking for signs of information operations. Symantec and others are tracking Orange Worm, a cyber-espionage campaign that's hitting healthcare organizations. X-ray and MRI devices are most often affected. Many researchers doubt that the group behind the campaign is a nation-state, but the attacker's goals are obscure. They seem to be after either personal information about patients or intellectual property about the medical devices themselves. Google's Project Zero has disclosed a vulnerability in Windows 10. It's possible to bypass Windows' lockdown policy in a way that can result in arbitrary code execution. Microsoft missed Google's 90-day deadline for addressing reported vulnerabilities, so Google has gone public with the unpatched issue. Presumably, a patch will be forthcoming, but there's nothing available now. The business-focused social network LinkedIn has issued a patch for its autocomplete API. The function turned out to be leaky. Quantifying cyber risk is an ongoing challenge faced by many organizations. Jerry Caponera is vice president of cyber risk strategy at Nehemiah Security, And he maintains we need a methodology to quantify, justify, and advance the risk management conversation among executives.
0: Pretty much everybody I've ever spoken to has said they want to be able to treat cybersecurity as a business. But there's just a lot of churn on what that means, how to do it, and what they should do. So definitely early, um, but with just a huge upside.
1: I feel as though in the last uh, year or two, the conversation has certainly shifted at the board level, where people are talking about risk, um, in terms of risk.
0: Um, do you feel like there's still a ways to go? I do. So what's interesting is that I think you're right. I think in the last year or two, I've seen that shift as well, too. I think there's a couple of drivers for that shift, personally. One is, obviously, we're seeing and hearing more about large financial losses due to attacks, I think it was last fall, uh, Merck was hit with a site with a ransomware attack, and they finally said they lost on it. The cost of them on air about, about $350 million. About a third of that was related to revenue and the rest with other costs. So that's that. That's kind of an eye-opening number. You're starting to see, I think, one more high-profile attacks. The second thing I think that's driving much more awareness for companies at the board level is you're starting to see a, some more regulations. I'm actually a big fan of what the EU has done with GDPR Hmm. because they're finally starting to put teeth to some of the cyber regulations that exist. You know, having uh, losing data on a European national and having to deal with potentially a 4% of my revenue loss, that's a big number potentially. So you're starting to see more numbers pop up, which is good. And the third thing is just recently we saw the SEC release a report that basically says companies need to start talking about what a material cybersecurity risk is now the gene- the guidance was vague there but reading on the, you know reading that on the walls reading with sarbanes oxley compliance and where that's going you can see that not only are companies starting to get aware they're starting to have to become aware which is unfortunately i don't believe full change for a company will take effect until they have to so
1: how do you guide people along towards these conversations
0: it kind of depends on who you're talking to. Uh, the reality is these conversations are still amongst two different camps, right? Those, I'll call them, I think you said, in the security camp or, and those on the business side of the camp. You have to drive them to the answer based on which camp they're actually in. So we were just having a conversation about uh, working on some, some material to help educate security folks that what they really need to be doing is is aligning with the key uh, strategic initiatives the organization is taking in the next 12 to 18 months, right? How do they start to show that security is an enabler? And the only way to do that is to actually tie to the business initiatives. If your goal as a company is to grow 400%, which means you have to increase your online presence by, you know, 50%, so you can generate more leads. What would a cyber attack potentially do that could impact that? On the security side, how do I make sure that an attack doesn't happen because if it does it's going to inhibit my ability to basically make that number i heard it i heard um a gentleman once say that the best way we can answer the question you asked is to stop thinking of cyber professionals when we announce ourselves saying we're cyber people we should be saying we're business people with a cybersecurity focus because it's that closing of the gap between the cyber and the business that's going to make this a reality and you have to drive those conversations up from where security is and down from where the business is. And that simple example of, hey, I want to grow my online presence by 50% so I can generate more marketing leads because marketing is our number one driver for future revenue. The question then becomes, well, how can cyber help the business reach that goal? And if we can have that conversation, we're in the right track.
1: That's Jerry Caponera from Nehemiah Security. As the U.S. government weighs sanctions against Russia, one of its targets may be Kaspersky. Officials say they're considering banning all of the company's operations in the U.S., in addition to the already effective ban on U.S. federal agencies buying Kaspersky products. Any such sanctions would be imposed after Kaspersky's suit, alleging it's the victim of an unconstitutional bill of attainder, is resolved. Kaspersky denies that it's improperly connected to Russian intelligence, but Western officials say there's a problem in Russian laws that compel cooperation with security services. Speaking of Russian security services, the hacker accused of exposing 3 billion or so Yahoo! records on behalf of Russia's FSB is getting his day in court. Karim Baratov, a Canadian citizen of Kazakh origins, was snaffled up by Canadian police and extradited to the U.S. to face charges on his March 2017 indictment. The U.S. prosecutors are asking that the spearfisher be awarded 94 months in club fed. That's just shy of eight years. It was a nice gig while it lasted. Baratov was a hacker for hire who made it a point of not asking his employers too many questions, and it paid for him. He's a car guy. He used his FSB paychecks to buy a Lamborghini, a Porsche, an Aston Martin, a Mercedes, and a BMW. His defense team is pleading in mitigation that, one, Mr. Bartoff is young, under 22 when he was most active, and two, after all, it's his first arrest. As U.S. midterm elections approach, voting is more than six months away, but American election cycles are famously long. At least 20 states have expressed a degree of uneasiness about the security of their election systems. One solution a number of people are proposing is to call the National Guard— that reliable standby the states use to deal with emergencies of all kinds. The Guard itself has cyber units of various kinds in some 38 states and room to grow, as officers say. Such units could provide some useful incident response capability. A RAND study in 2017 concluded that there were more than 100,000 personnel in the Army Reserve and Army Reserve National Guard. That latter name is the official name of what we civilians just call the National Guard. How such expertise might be used is untested. We heard one useful suggestion at RSA in conversation with the Chertoff Group's Adam Isles. Find people with IT skills in the Guard and give them the ability to build up their security chops. Then they can take those skills and lessons learned back with them to their jobs. A lot of the 100,000-plus Rand saw in the Guard with some relevant skills are people who work in IT jobs. That's not security directly, but it's a good start— So have at it, weekend warriors. Of course, there are plenty of people in the private sector willing to help, too. We heard from Tom Kempt, CEO of security firm Centrify, who's got an offer for state election boards. If they want to ameliorate the risk posed by stolen or compromised credentials, the kind of thing that could gum up the polls on election day, imagine the election judges turning you away with a Sorry, sir, we regret it, ma'am, but your address is a digit off. They can get Centrify's zero-trust platform at no charge. So that's another offer on the table. And for those of you keeping track of these things, GDPR is just one month away. Thought we'd mention that. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. So interesting uh, research released from the folks at Malwarebytes Labs. They were talking about uh, a device called a Gray Key, which is an iPhone unlocker, and they're saying there's some serious concerns here. Uh, what, what do you take? What do you, what do you suspect's
2: going on here? Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure. These these people have developed a a small piece of hardware. That does something to an iPhone that then causes that iPhone to display its uh, passcode to unlock the phone. Yeah. So, what is going on there? It it, it, just the in the article they're speculating that there's something that where they install a uh, where they root the phone or or jailbreak the phone, and and then they I guess they have to install some kind of app that goes through and guesses the the passwords uh, that runs in the background and displays a message on the screen. Going through some sort of brute force process. I'm, I'm almost guaranteeing that it's a brute force process because one of the one of the key indicators is that it takes longer to pass or to come up with a six digit passcode than it does a four digit passcode, and that to me just says brute force. So there's no right. magic in how they're breaking the phone open; they're just trying all the different combinations. The magic comes in how they stop the phone from erasing itself after so many failed attempts. Right. And that's probably why they they're jailbreaking it. They're probably intercepting the. The system calls that would go back and 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 erase those uh, erase the the memory chips. And one of the concerns
1: here is that these sorts of devices have been available in the past with you know previous versions of, of iOS. Uh, Celebrate was a, a manufacturer of of a different one. Yep. Um, and these, while they're intended for law enforcement, but as with these sorts of things, they can sort of slip out and make their way out into the wild.
2: Yeah, there was one. The article talks about one called the IP Box Two which unlocked older, or still unlocks older iPhones. In fact, you can still get them on, on Amazon, the article says. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, these things have been released into the wild in the past. The gray key box, however, looks like they're being very tight with their control of it um, over you know, making sure that only law enforcement get it. That being said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, <laughs> right? Right. right. So, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before one of these things disappears from some law enforcement site. Uh, there are models that can be used anywhere. They they have a key, but the key is small. Uh, that can also be swiped out with, with the device, no problem. I don't know how concerned I am about this. It's definitely a, um, an edge case. Yeah.
1: Well, it, it strikes me that if you're someone for whom this sort of security is a concern... You're going to know that, and you're going to be using more than a four-digit numeric password.
2: Right, right. And even if you're using a, a longer password, I guess this thing will eventually break it. But you know, you'll be using other other ways of of communicating that that don't necessarily uh, rely on the security of an Apple device.
1: Yeah, it, concentric circles of uh, of security. Right. Where, you know, unlocking the phone is one thing, but then maybe another layer encryption. You know, point to
2: point, all that sort of stuff. Yes. Uh, you know, plausible deniability apps that, that delete chat histories. Right, right.
1: All right, well, it's an interesting cat and mouse. And, it is. Uh,
2: and it's, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, what's interesting about this is I'd like to know if, you know, what Apple's doing to try to address this. I'll bet that they're aware of this. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, because Apple generally tends to have a, a pretty good security stance. You know, I, I like to pick on Apple, but one of the things I don't generally pick on them about is their security.
1: All right, Joe. It's interesting stuff as always. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.